Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is our, I believe, our last evangelism for seminar, and we're going to finish taking a look at um, the gospel, uh, as, and specifically as it applies to those followers of, of Allah. So basically, we're going to be looking at what kind of God Allah is and why your Muslim friends, and literally, um, they want to hear the good news of their true father and his son, Jesus Christ. So often, uh, Christians place an incredible pressure on themselves to have all the right answers and to be ready to say just the right thing So uh, before they enter into an evangelical Evangelistic, excuse me, evangelistic conversation. In part, this is probably a godly desire to help others. However, it's probably also mixed with a serious lack of faith in God's ability to use what we do to minister to others. These fears, which I often have too, may be more concentrated when it comes to engaging Muslims than perhaps any other religious group. This is not a class that will prepare you to apologetically engage your Muslim friends point by point on doctrine, the veracity of scripture, or other common Islamic objections to the gospel. Yet I pray that this class helps you have a godly compassion for those enslaved by Islam and emboldens you to trust that God is delighted to win glory to himself, not only by saving Muslims, but even by working through your weaknesses to do so. So turn your handouts. And as we begin at the basic beliefs of Islam, again, this is just looking at the very basic understanding of Islam. So at first glance, there's a lot of common ground shared between Christian and Muslim beliefs. Left a lot of white space so you all can take notes as often as you'd like to. One point, we both believe in one God who created everything and rules everything. We both, Christians and Muslims, both use many of the same words to describe God. Sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, merciful, just, holy, righteous, benevolent. We both agree man will stand before God and be judged to eternal reward or eternal punishment. We both use words like repentance and faith to describe the needful response of man to God. However, these similarities are only um, shallow, if you will, not very deep, because although we use the same words, we mean very different things. Ultimately, the question of how anyone will be reconciled to God and enter into his presence is inextricably connected to who God reveals himself to be. In other words, what is missing from the Muslim belief is the word Savior. The first part is God. So again, this is looking at uh, what Islam considers God. Uh, the oneness of God is Islam's central creed. This is more simply than an assertion of monotheism. So you kind of get the full sense of that creed when they say there is no God but Allah in Arabic, which is certainly this, but also more. They, the way they believe that of their God is absolute denial of all plurality, meaning that uh, consisting of two or more of the same kind. They, uh, so absolute denial of all plurality of nature or person in God, meaning no trinity. Part number two, a timeless unity 
of that which is not made or generated. So they do believe that Allah is is timeless. Uh, third part is a comprehensiveness of all physical, intellectual, and moral force in the universe that renders all creation unconditionally passive and without action. The Islamic doctrine of God implies a supreme being, immeasurably exalted above and wholly dissimilar from creation, kind of similar to how we believe our one true God. Who, however, who communicates nothing, absolutely nothing to his creatures, and whose apparent power to act are ever his will alone, and who in return receive nothing from them. Also, the doctrine of the Islam doctrine of God implies as a supreme being whose purpose in creation is to manifest his own power. And lastly, whose the, uh, the Islam doctrine of God implies a supreme being whose primary impulse towards mankind is that they never attribute to themselves what is rightfully his. So as we look at um, the Islam understanding or their doctrine of God is that as, as Christians, as believers, that we put in mind that there's a full force of the um, terrible full fearfulness of God, but without his love and mercy and without his purpose to redeem for himself a his own people to live forever with him in his forever kingdom. So that is something that is negated by Islam and, and their God. Part number two, man. So the, the way Islam looks at man. So despite Muslims' professedly high reverence for God, Islam is a very man-centered religion. In Islam, the chief end of man is not to know God and enjoy him forever, but to obey God. The very word Islam means submission, and the vast majority of Islamic writings are about laws, what it, that is, what is permissible and what is forbidden. Man himself is not inherently depraved in his inmost being, but rather weak or merely ignorant. His nature before and after the fall are unchanged. Neither is man made in God's image. So... Very different. Islam does not believe that man is made in God's image. Nor can man ever aspire to relate to God. Man will only enter into God's presence once to be judged. If condemned, he will go to hell. If rewarded, he will be delivered into a man-centric paradise in which Allah does not participate. So a, a very vast contrast between the God of Islam called Allah and our Heavenly Father. Very man-centric. Right, part number three, sin, the way Islams look at sin. Sin is a difficult concept for Christians and Muslims to speak meaningfully about together because we mean such different things by the word. Islamic scholars endlessly debate the taxonomy of sin, which sins are great, and which are small. But there is no debate about the nature of sin. Nothing is right or wrong by nature, but becomes so by command of Allah. What Allah forbids is sin. What he permits is rightful, right and lawful. 
All his commands are not rooted in his nature, with which we cannot relate. Nor are they imprinted on our conscience, a concept for which the Quran has no equivalence, as we are in no way made in his image. Nor is sin immutable, that is, not capable of change. As the commands of Allah changed over the course of Quranic revelation, that which was sin before is not sin and cannot be sin at the time that Allah later allows it. Finally, although Muslims absolutely agree on the one hand that sin creates a problem for man and incurs all his wrath, on the other hand, sin is still fundamentally evil of done to oneself, and that's quoted from the Surah chapter 6, verse 1. As the God of Islam stands too far above and removed from us to be directly concerned or offended by our disobedience any more than we are concerned for or impacted by the life of an ant who is a thousand miles removed. Uh, part number four, salvation. So the Muslim idea of salvation greatly differs from our biblical understanding of the term. When Muslim theologians talk about Allah, uh, talk about what Allah gives us, what Christians would call salvation, they refer to fala, meaning success, blessing, or simply a reward. To obtain Allah's reward, the main focus in Islam is obedience to walk in the straight path of righteousness, which is outlined by the Quran, and a path of works also known as the five pillars of, of Islam. The shahada, which is the confession one must repeat three times to become a Muslim, that's where they say there is no deity but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. That shows that a Muslim believes in Allah alone as the deity and believes that Muhammad reveals Allah. There's also the salat, or the prayers. The ritual prayers performed five times a day in a face Mecca. Also fasting during Ramadan. These fasting hours are meant to cause Muslims to empathize with the poor and impoverished. Zakat, or the giving of alms to the poor. And lastly, Hajj, or the pilgrimage to Mecca, which is in Saudi Arabia, to be made at least once in a lifetime. Muslims believe that on the Day of Judgment, Allah will weigh out their sins and good works on the scale of justice. They, uh, Allah will listen to the intercession, intercession of his prophet Muhammad and will then make his own arbitrary and inscrutable judgment, a judgment which is already foreordained, and which, because all creation is an extension which is already foreordained, excuse me, because all creation is an extension of the will and force of Allah in the first place, in a very impactful sense, cannot be affected. And yet, having no other choice and in fear, for which there is no other south, millions of followers of Islam the world over practice these works and hope it will be enough. Now let's move to part number three, which is the key divergences from biblical Christianity. Now we can agree with Muslims that God is, is holy, just, righteous, and our judge, but our Muslim friends do not understand the following. They don't understand that God is holy and by his nature cannot abide any evil. Number two, that because he is holy, that he will judge all evil without exception. And number three, 
nor that our righteous judge is none other than the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that glorious Trinity. Unless we tell our Muslim friends, they will enter eternity and be stunned with eternal grief to find waiting before the Son of God, whom they rejected in this life. In particular, we need to be faithful and bold to make the following four things clear. So the first of the four things is sin. Sin offends our holy God. Specific sins are not the fundamental problem. The existence and ugliness of sin is the problem. Whether the sin is small or great, or whether the sin is committed or omitted, whether the sin is by word or by deed or by thought, sin is, is not simply a transgression of the law, but it is a breaking of relationship with the person of God. Sin of any manner is an expression of rebellion for which God requires atoning sacrifice. And I put Leviticus chapter 4. We must challenge our Muslim friends' concepts of permitted and forbidden with the grim reality of guilt and transgression. Number two, another, the second key divergence from biblical Christianity is genuine repentance requires abandoning sin. Repentance requires more than just sorrow over major transgressions. Repentance is a complete turning away, more like crossing a bridge and setting in a light behind us so that we may never travel back to a path of sinful desires and habits again. And you can look at the verse uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 22 to 23. Number three, genuine faith requires accurate knowledge of agreement with, and a personal acceptance of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Faith is no more the reciting of the Shahada than it is the praying of the sinner's prayer. Importantly, faith is a gift from God wherein the sinner personally entrusts himself to Jesus as Lord and Savior who purchases forgiveness and eternal life through his crucifixion as resurrection. There was no one who could ever satisfy God's wrath against sin except God himself. There has never been anyone who should satisfy God's wrath except men who have incurred it. Sinful man. Each and every one of us. Thus to satisfy justice and to give mercy the unique person of Christ that is perfect God and perfect man entered history to do what only God could yet do, what only man should do, and by a guiltless death, he bore away the guilt of all those who will repent and believe in him. And lastly, forgiveness with God comes by grace alone, apart from any works of righteousness. Genuine conversion issues forth in good works in a changed life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Would someone turn there and please read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Thank you. So, genuine conversion issues forth in good works in a changed life, but good works in a moral life do not earn God's 
forgiveness or salvation. Adding anything to the cross of Christ is slavery to the law makes Christ of no value to us all. Depending on our own righteousness alienates us from Christ and God's grace. As another reference to go in the future, you can turn to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Part number 4, evangelism. How would we evangelize to our Muslim friend? Number one, use the word of God. Number two, introduce them to Jesus. In other words, you want to, um, when you introduce them to Jesus, you're going to help them to explore Christianity, invite them to a Bible study. You'll be very surprised how often Muslims will initiate questions about Jesus if you are living, that is, if you, Christian, are living a life that invites them to do so. So let's personalize sin in the same way Christ did for his hearers. In your discussion with your Muslim friend, make sin a personal matter rather than an academic idea. Press home the point of sin and guilt graciously but clearly. To the extent that you are able, foster a sense of urgency. Like the Israelites of Jesus' time, many Muslims take heaven for granted because they are a child of Abraham and a good Muslim. Many have never considered the possibility that they might go to hell, and opening their eyes to this may be the most loving thing you can do. Think of, as examples, the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verses 7 to 33, as well as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses verse 3 to chapter 7, verse 29. Number two, uh, tell stories about Jesus' grace. I encourage you to focus on telling your Muslim friends stories about ways Jesus challenged and sometimes rejected the self-righteous but embraced the marginalized and sick sinners who need their need of him. This, ideally, will stir up questions in your Muslim friend because of the way Christ confronts works righteousness in the is the complete opposite of what Islam glorifies. Here are a few stories that the gospel can help you get started. Think of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Use this example of the self-righteous brother to show how pride estranges us, estranges us from God, and that we must also repent of the false sense of self-righteousness that hardens our hearts towards others. This may incite a visible response of shock and disbelief from your Muslim friend, since Islamic cultures take respecting their elders, especially the father, and preserving a family's honor very seriously. A second example, the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee who both went to the temple to pray. That's in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. A third example, the bleeding woman who touches the cloak of Jesus and is healed. In Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 48. In this example, your Muslim friend may find it appalling that a bleeding woman who would be considered too unclean to even pray to Allah would touch the Holy One, yet Jesus calls her daughter, speaks with her, and then heals her. Use this story to show them that Christ's 
Holiness purifies the undeserving, the unholy. Explain the seriousness of sin and the need for a sacrifice. As an example, Muslims go through a meticulous process of ceremonial washing when they have been exposed to external defilements in order to attain proper standing before their God, Allah. So ask your Muslim friend, how is it that our hearts and minds will be cleansed of filthy, dirty sin? He can cleanse his hands and body, but how does he cleanse his heart? So share the good news with Muslims that if we confess our sins, he, the Lord God Almighty, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Only Jesus can cleanse our hearts, minds, and souls to make us acceptable before God. Be patient with your Muslim friend when you explain why Jesus had to die. Show them that sacrifices for atonement have been a part of prophetic traditions as early as Adam and Eve, followed by more examples at the Temple, the Holy of Holies, and in Isaiah chapter 53. Remind them of the warning God gave Adam and Eve in the garden, but of the tree the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. God cannot lie, and he must stay true to his word when he said that sin will lead to death. Another way to evangelize to your Muslim friend in introducing to Jesus, emphasize the resurrection. Spend a long time emphasizing God's victory through the resurrection. You cannot stress this enough. Unfortunately, many Christians tend to mention the resurrection as a side note when they, rep- when they present the gospel. But precisely because our Muslim friends often find the death of Christ to be a stumbling block, we must be careful to explain that through the resurrection of Christ, God was victorious, defeated sin, defeated Satan, and the evil which so many Muslims fear. Because of the resurrection, Jesus stands in authority and has placed all things under his feet. Because Jesus conquered sin and death and was raised to life, those who follow him also die to their sins and are raised to new life in the way of Christ. Invite your Muslim friend to follow a risen, all-powerful, conquering Savior. How else do we introduce them to Jesus? Use biblical language. Remember, your Muslim friend shares terms like repentance and faith, just like we do. And they may struggle to understand how your faith is distinctive. So instead, try to use distinctive biblical language that they won't be able to ignore. Born again, in John chapter 3, verse 3. Born of God. In John chapter 3, verses 7 to 8, and John chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Raised from death to life, in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. United to Christ, Romans 6, 5. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And in Colossians 3, verse 3. And a new creation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. Know your Old Testament. Muslims love the prophets, especially Abraham and Moses, and the stories about God's work through them. Show them how even the prophets in the Old Testament all foreshadowed God's plan of 
ultimate plan, God's ultimate plan of redemption through Christ. For example, Muslims love the story of Abraham who was willing to sacrifice his son because it shows that Abraham had such faith in Allah that he was willing to obey God even if it meant the death of his son. As a side note, you should understand that Quran, the Quran teaches it was Ishmael, not Isaac. So this is such an important story in Islamic tradition that Muslims commemorate it every year at the Eid al-Adha holiday. So explain to your Muslim friend that all of us are just like Abraham's son and that our sin puts a death sentence on our lives. But as Allah sent an animal in place of Abraham's son, our gracious God provided a sacrifice through Jesus Christ. Always, always be continually in prayer. Remember, the Holy Spirit seeks and saves the lost. So seek the Holy Spirit's guidance and power as you present the word. Be a, be a genuine friend. Show your good works. Tell them why you do the good works that you do. Believer, you are a Christian, so be conformed in the likeness of Jesus. Your Muslim friend should most certainly notice a difference between you and other Americans. Undoubtedly, your good works will commend your faith, but be very clear. Be very clear that you pursue holiness as a response to the gift of salvation he has given you. Your Muslim friend must try to find ways to say you are both the same in your desire to honor God. So gently yet boldly point out that while your Muslim friend is trying to earn God's favor, you are responding, responding to his unconditional love. Will someone turn to John chapter, excuse me, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And whoever gets there first, please go ahead and read 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Go ahead. Uh, this is love. Not what not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Thank you. So we as Christians are responding to God's unconditional love to us. For your Muslim friend, love them unconditionally. Show them hospitality. Seek to bless them with generosity of Christ regardless of how they initially respond to the gospel. As important as it is that you verbally explain the gospel, it is just as crucial that you love and serve your, your Muslim friend. This helps to put flesh on the claims that we make about Christ. This is crucial because it shows our Muslim friends that contrary to Islam, the gospel is not merely about external adherence to a system of laws and instructions. Our loving actions towards our Muslim friends will show them the love of God himself. I pray you can ask thought-provoking questions. Questions like, do you expect to go to heaven? Or another question, how do you know God will accept you. A third question. What does the Quran teach about forgiveness? May I show you what the Bible teaches? What will heaven be like? Will God be there? 
And lastly, another last question. Get to Jesus and move the conversation to the critical question, who is Jesus? Listen attentively when you ask questions. Listen to the answer no matter how long it takes. Don't just look for the pause that lets you jump in with an answer. Be an active listener, and you'll be surprised what you learn. Present your beliefs boldly. State what you believe clearly and openly and without apology. Show scripture passages to support those teachings. This places the responsibility for doctrine where it belongs, which is on the word of God. Reason. Do not argue with your Muslim friends. Arguments may win the point, but lose the hearing. So avoid vain disputation. Keep getting back to Jesus. Don't denigrate Muhammad or the Quran, so just, just don't do it. Be mindful of cultural sensitivities. Guard your tongue. Be careful how you also physically handle the Bible as a holy text. Be sensitive to, to gender customs. Because, uh, I didn't know if you knew this, but the Muslims also uh, believe that the Bible is a very holy text. So don't set anything on top of it. Don't just toss it down. Show that show your love for God's word and, and persevere. Islam is enslaving, and Muslims have a lot of rethinking to do when they encounter the gospel. Be patient and strive to be faithful. Also, engage the corporate witness of the church. Remember, the Bible is God's living and active word that will change hearts and lives. So we read that in Isaiah chapter 55. Realize that when we invite our Muslim friends to put their faith in Christ, we are asking them to put their family relationships, their reputation, and sometime, or actually very often, their very lives in jeopardy. Your Muslim friend is very much accustomed to identifying with their own gathering, and it would serve him well to be surrounded by a loving community of God's people. As he or she considers the claims of Jesus and Lord willing, turning their life to Christ. Show your Muslim friend the comforting truth of God's word in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. Could somebody please turn there and read Matthew chapter 19, verse 29? Anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundred Thank you, Michael. Show your Muslim friends these comforting truth in God's word. And remember, the unity of the local church reveals that Christ, that Jesus Christ has truly come. Well, I know that was a lot to go over, so in conclusion, I, I pray that in reaching our Muslim friends, um, it's not how much knowledge we know or of Islam. It's not any clever strategies we may have for our our squeaky clean lives. But our hope is in is in God Himself and His supernatural power to save. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
it does help to understand some of the nuances of Islamic beliefs, and we should be wise in the specific ways we do interact with Muslims. But ultimately, it is God who saves. Our task, our task, believer, is to be faithful in presenting the gospel to our Muslim friends and trust that the Lord God will provide those results.